Good morning, everyone. You can hear me okay? All right. Well, it's a privilege to be here with you again this morning. I've been gone the last few weeks. We had a powerful weekend two weeks ago up at Pine Springs. The Lord was very much with us in a special way at Southwest Youth Conference. If you weren't there, I would suggest you listen to the messages on Audioverse. And at Southwest Youth Conference and in various places, people continue to ask when Joelle and I are going to leave Loma Linda. So I'm going to take another opportunity to give you an update. Um, For those of you who don't know, Joelle and I are going to Trinidad to be missionaries at the Adventist Hospital. And paperwork oftentimes doesn't come through as fast as you think it should. And I've continued to be here and work. The Lord has provided a job for the time being, so I'm fine. It looks like we will be here through at least November, so I guess that would be two and a half more months. And that's always subject to change. So um, if you see us here in December or January, please don't get mad at us. (laughs) We are just trying to follow the Lord in His timing. And when it happens, we will go. So at this time, I I would like to have a word of prayer and we will get into our message for today. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful Sabbath morning that we can come together. And I pray in a special way that you would be with me as I speak. But I pray that I would be lost sight of and that Jesus Christ would be lifted up. And that at the end of this presentation, Christ would be seen more clearly and more beautifully, and I would be forgotten. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, a verse that we all know very well. Here's The Apostle John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Today I want to talk to you about the danger of kingly power and the pride of life. And I came across a news article this week that epitomizes the problem of the pride of life in the culture that we live in. As Americans, you often hear the term, we pride ourselves in. And I want to read an interesting article. This was actually in the New York Times just four days ago, written by David Brooks, a fairly well-known political commentator. And he writes, this is an op-ed column, the title of the column is High Five Nation. He says, on Sunday evenings, my local NPR station airs old radio programs. A few weeks ago, it broadcast the episode of the show Command Performance that aired the day World War II ended. 
command performance was a, uh, was a variety show that went out to the troops around the world. On VJ Day, the victory day at the end of World War II, a number of celebrities appeared. The most striking feature of this show was its tone of self-effacement and humility. The Allies had on that very day completed one of the noblest military victories in the history of humanity, and yet there was no chest beating. Nobody was erecting triumphal arches. All anybody can do is thank God it's over, one of the show's hosts said. Today our deep down feeling is one of humility, he added. Going on, this columnist says later in the article, he says, when you glimpse back on those days, the 1940s, you see a people, even the rich and famous celebrities, who were overawed by the scope of the events around them. The war produced such monumental effects and such rivers of blood that the individual ego seemed petty in comparison. Then he goes on to say, you also hear a cultural reaction. As the Times of London pointed out on the day of victory, fascism had stood for grandiosity, pomposity, boasting, and zeal. So here you see a contrast. The Americans, they're humble, they're just thankful that it's over and that good has prevailed. The enemies, those who were on the other side, they stood for grandiosity, pomposity, boasting, and zeal. And going on to, he says, when you look back, to, when you look from today back to 1945, you are looking into a different cultural epoch, across a sort of narcissism line, humility, the sense that nobody is that different from anybody else, was a large part of the culture back then. But that humility came under attack in the ensuing decades. Do you think he's right? Self-effacement became identified with conformity and self-repression. A different ethos came to the fore, which the sociologists call expressive individualism. Instead of being humble before God and history, moral salvation could be found through intimate contact with oneself and by exposing the beauty, the power, and the divinity within. Now this is interesting. This is a secular columnist who's saying this. Notice what he then says as he closes in these last three paragraphs. Everything that starts out as a cultural revolution ends up as capitalist routine. Before long, self-exposure and self-love became ways to win shares in the competition for attention. Muhammad Ali would tell all cameras that he was the greatest of all time. Norman Mailer wrote a book called Advertisements for Myself. Today, Immodesty is as ubiquitous as advertising, and for the same reasons. To scoop up just a few examples of self-indulgent expression from the past few days, there is Joe Wilson using the house floor as his own private crossfire. There is Michael Jordan's egomaniacal and self-indulgent Hall of Fame speech. Baseball and football games are now so routinely interrupted by self-celebration, you don't even notice it anymore. And he closes by saying, this isn't the death of civilization, it's just the culture in which we live. And from this vantage point, a display of mass modesty, like the kind represented on the VJ Day command performance, comes as something of a refreshing shock, a glimpse into another world. And notice his last sentence. It's funny how the nation's mood was at its most humble when its actual achievements were at their most extraordinary. You know, do you think that that attitude has stayed out in the world alone? Or has it made its way 
into the church. We just read in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, to love not the world. And you may say to yourself, well, I don't love the world. I love Jesus. But what about your personal life, your personal experience? Do you appreciate recognition? And are there certain things that you would only do if you would, the only way you would do it would be to be recognized for your humble acts of service? That's not humility. And what John is saying in 1 John 2, love not the world. Do not partake of that spirit of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's interesting, Jesus in the wilderness was tempted on all three points. And of course, Hebrews 4 tells us Jesus was tempted in all points, like as we are yet without sin. So that's ample evidence that we do not need to partake of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Do you think Jesus was tempted to be proud? Here was Jesus on this earth, and every time he was ridiculed, every time he was put down, oh, there's that crazy man from Nazareth saying something again. Do you think he might have been tempted to say, don't you know who I am? I am the Son of God. I made you. Now you listen to me. (laughs) But he didn't do that. Now this issue of the pride of life, where does it come from? Of course, we all know this. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, speaking of Lucifer, this is where we first find the issue of pride, and I'll just read this passage briefly. Isaiah chapter 14 Starting in verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Notice how the word I keeps popping up. And if you find yourself saying, I want to do this, I don't want to do that, be careful. Be careful of what spirit may be driving the thoughts behind these ideas. But Lucifer, a perfect being created by a perfect God, developed pride. And if Lucifer, who was a perfect being created by a perfect God, living in a a perfect environment, could develop the attributes of pride, please don't tell me that none of us don't struggle with that very same issue. Because Lucifer is the father of pride. The The foundation of sin in heaven was centered around the issue of pride. And it's pride that has weakened humanity down through time. And pride is oftentimes seen in its worst way in the context of kingly power. And I want to take a look at that today. We're going to start... In the book of Daniel, looking at King Nebuchadnezzar, 
with respect to the issue of pride and kingly power. Now, we know the story about Nebuchadnezzar, so I'm just going to highlight some of the the key points here. But in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and God gives him that dream. And if you read If you read Daniel chapter 2, you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar was sitting on his bed thinking, what's going to happen in the future? What's the future of this world hold? What's going to happen to my kingdom? And God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and gave him a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream and he forgets it. And he calls his wise men. His wise men can't Obviously, they're not going to be able to tell him the interpretation because they don't even know what the dream is. So what's Nebuchadnezzar's reaction? If you don't tell me the dream, I am going to kill all of you. Well, that sounds like a nice guy there, huh? You know, if you read on, you'll see in Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to get there, that there was a time when Nebuchadnezzar is described as a as a tall tree with large branches for which men and even the beasts of the earth could, could rest under the shade of those branches and find relief. And Ellen White even says that in the beginning part of Nebuchadnezzar's reign as king, he was a humble king. He cared about his subjects. He looked out for the best of the, of the subjects in his kingdom. This was a pagan king. And yet, as he got used to being the king, as he got used to being in charge, being in control, having the power to make the decisions, he developed a character that said, if you cross me, I'm going to kill you. If you don't do what, I'm gonna, what I want you to do, I'm going to cut you down. And God worked through that circumstance and said, okay, Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king. He doesn't know about the true God. Let me give him this dream. Okay, the wise men aren't going to figure it out. Let's send Daniel. And Daniel gives him the interpretation. And that was a miracle. And that alone should have helped Nebuchadnezzar to realize that God is the true God. I am nothing compared to him. He gave me a dream I couldn't remember, and then he sends some Hebrew captive to tell me the interpretation. That God is powerful and amazing, and I am nothing. That's what God was trying to do to Nebuchadnezzar. But in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar decides that he doesn't like God's plan. Because it was revealed, of course, to Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom, the head of gold, would be replaced. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He makes an image that is all gold. He's like, you know, God, I know that you're saying that my kingdom is going to be replaced, but I am the king of Babylon. Do you know who I am? I am the most powerful king on earth, and you may be God, but I'm the king of Babylon. He's forgetting that in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel told him, God sets up kings and he takes them down. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't think so. It's sort of like us today. When we read the word of God, 
we read a prophetic message, and we say, I know God says this, but I'm going to do it this way. God may be all-knowing. God may be all-powerful. He may be all-loving. He may know what's best for me, but I'm going to still do it my way. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar makes a golden image, and by the grace of God, three Hebrew boys are faithful. What would have happened if those three Hebrew boys had bowed down with everybody else, including all the other Hebrew captives who bowed down? I guarantee you there were other Hebrew captives there. And because of their faithfulness, Nebuchadnezzar goes from receiving a dream from God to seeing the Son of Man in person. We see this in Daniel 3.25. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. So now, Nebuchadnezzar, this proud king, has not only received a dream, he receives a direct visitation where he sees with his own eyes the Son of Man. Notice what Jesus is trying to do, or what God is trying to do to reach Nebuchadnezzar. God is doing everything he can to save Nebuchadnezzar from his pride and pomposity. And he'll do the same thing for us. But remember, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have as much light back then as we do now. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, this is the true God. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then he makes a decree that says, if you speak against this God, I'll kill you. (laughs) Not quite getting it. So then we go to Daniel chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar actually writes this chapter. And we're going to pick it up in verse 10. Nebuchadnezzar starts off by talking about how um, he wants to extol and praise the God of heaven. Then he describes how he has a dream, and this time he remembers what it is. He calls in his wise men, and they won't tell him what the interpretation is. And then he calls in Daniel. But let's read in starting verse 10. Thus were the visions of mine head and my bed. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. So this is the part where Nebuchadnezzar was a good king. He took care of his subjects. In verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. Verse 14, he cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches. Shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. And he goes on to say that a stump is left and he'll be passed over seven times. And Daniel comes in, gives him the interpretation and tells him that he's going to be cut down. The kingdom will be taken from him. That he will become like a wild beast for seven years. And then he implores the king to repent. 
he tells the king, please, use this as an opportunity to break off thy sins by righteousness. That's verse 27. Now notice what happens. So Nebuchadnezzar first, he's given a dream by God about the future of the kingdoms of this world. Then he, in defiance to God and to prophecy, makes a golden image, and the Son of Man visits him directly. Then the third time, God gives him another vision and says, Look, if you don't repent, you are going to be cut down and turned into a wild animal. Now, if we, we would all like to say, Boy, if, if God sent me a vision like that, I would definitely change. How, how could Nebuchadnezzar be so dumb? I mean, you know, God's telling him he's going to cut him down, take his kingdom away from him, and make him crazy. I mean, I would definitely change. I mean, come on, Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, how many times does God reveal things to us? We know that God is speaking to us, and then we go back to the same old thing. So let's not point fingers at Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look to ourselves and ask for God to have mercy and grace upon us. But notice what happens in verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he, Nebuchadnezzar, walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. Notice what happens. Nebuchadnezzar has received a dream of the prophetic future of the kingdoms of this world. In defiance to God, he builds an image, and yet he sees the Son of Man with his own eyes. Then God sends him another dream and says, you are going to be cut down if you don't change and repent. Ellen White tells us for a time, Nebuchadnezzar actually did change a little bit. But then he went back to his old ways. Pride came into his heart, and he was walking out in the palace, and he was like, wow, look at this amazing city. This is the first great, prophetic superpower of Bible prophecy, and I built it. Wow, look at me. This is so amazing. I am so proud of myself for what I have done, for my might, for my glory, and for my majesty. And you know what? God cannot stand that kind of spirit. A spirit of bringing glory to yourself, taking the glory to yourself. When God has clearly revealed that he sets up kings, he takes them down. And so Nebuchadnezzar was cut down and he became a wild animal for seven years. That must have been a sight to behold. I mean, can you imagine um, George Bush or Barack Obama, something like that happening to them? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have lived through today's media scrutiny if that had happened. But yet, at the end of chapter 4, we see that Nebuchadnezzar repented. The kingdom was given to him. And at the end of the chapter, he gives praise and honor to God. And we have reason to believe that we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom. And 
if there's any of you who are struggling with pride today, hey, if God could save Nebuchadnezzar after all of that, he can work with you and help you to change as well. But what I would say, don't test God three or four times the way Nebuchadnezzar did. Listen to him the first time. Now, what's interesting is, you go to chapter 5 of Daniel, that's the fall of Babylon. Belshazzar continues that same spirit. He worships the god of gold, silver, brass, wood, and iron, drinking wine out of the holy vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. And it's in that night that Babylon is pronounced as fallen in its kingdom, given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar, he had witnessed everything that had happened to his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, and yet he decided to live according to the unconverted way of Nebuchadnezzar and take his chances that way, even after he had seen what had happened. And he got one chance, and with that one chance, he blew it, and God said, Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now, here is what I want to focus on. Daniel chapter 2 is known as the chapter of the image of gold, silver, brass, iron, feet of iron, and clay. And we use that to describe the kingdoms of this earth prophetically. What's interesting is that Babylon is the head of gold in the kingdoms. And Proverbs 23, 7 tells us, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you look at the kingdoms of this earth that follow the kingdom of Babylon with its head of gold, you see that same spirit of, is this not great Babylon that I have built? I don't care what the word of God says. We're going to do it the way we want to do it. Look to us in our might and our majesty. Don't look to God. And you see that spirit coming down through the kingdoms of this world to the very end of time. It's the spirit of Babylon. It's the spirit of kingly power that puts trust in man, that puts trust in the glory of man, in the power of man, in the wisdom of man, and ignores the power of God. And it's that spirit that God so desperately wants to destroy and to get rid of. And yet we find that spirit even among the professed people of God. If you go down through time after Babylon, when you come to the time of Christ, Jesus comes to the nation of Israel, to the Jews. Jesus humbles himself, lives the life of a common man, and yet teaches things that the world had never heard. But the Jewish leaders, who were used to being in power, they were used to having the authority, they were used to making the decisions. They expected the people to look to them to tell them how to interpret the word of God. So that when Jesus came and rightly divided the word of truth, the people, instead of following Christ, allowed their leaders to tell them for them how to respond to the teachings of Christ. And so 
this issue of pride and kingly power can clearly be seen in how the Jews related to Christ. The Jews expected a king to come and sit on the throne of David and to bring worldly honor, glory, wealth, and power to the nation of Israel. They would be looked upon by the rest of the world as the great nation of Israel whom the Messiah has blessed with the the best blessings in all the world and all the rest of you heathens, I'm just so sorry for you. And yet, Jesus came to show that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles and the whole world. And yet, the leaders of the Jewish nation didn't want to hear that. They wanted pride, glory, and power. They expected the Messiah to prop their pride and power up. And Jesus was not here to do that. You go down through history. We have that period called the Dark Ages. The 1,260 years from 538 to 1798. When professed Christianity told people, we interpret the Bible for you and you can't have the Bible. You can only come to church to hear the Bible preached, and we're the ones who will tell you how to preach the Word of God. And when we speak, we are infallible. It's the same spirit, the same idea. Anyone who tried to study for themselves, to read the Word of God for themselves, was cut down. And you see the spirit continue down through time. In the 1840s, God raised up a humble farmer by the name of William Miller, who truly was a humble man. William Miller did not want to go out and preach. William Miller would rather stay by himself, be quiet, not make a big scene, just stay at home and teach his family to love and serve God. And God says, no, go out and preach. And William Miller said, no, I don't want to go out and preach. But because he was humble, he followed the call of God. And if God's calling you to be a William Miller today, go out and do that. But I do get worried sometimes when some people think that they are the modern-day William Miller when God hasn't called them. And notice, God called William Miller to speak. God invited William Miller to speak. He was the one that gave him the invitations. William Miller did not invite himself. And when that message was given, many people responded to it in a very positive way, and yet the majority of Christians during that time went to their church leaders and said, is this message true or is it not? And so instead of receiving the first and second angel's message during that time, they listened to the opinions of their leaders who were used to being in power, who were used to the people listening to them instead of studying for themselves. And so God worked through the people who studied for themselves, who listened to his spirit leading, and they let his spirit help them to understand how to rightly divide the word of truth. And the spirit has continued even among God's professed people today. Let's try 1888. What happened in 1888? You know, there's a lot of debate about certain theological points, but here's some clear things that did happen. The president of the General Conference was named George Butler, or G.I. Butler, and he worked himself up into such a frenzy 
about what E.J. Wagner and A.T. Jones were doing that he actually got sick over it. In fact, he got so sick that he couldn't come to the 1888 General Conference. Now, you have to understand, when the General Conference of the World Church meets in session, you have a representative group of church leaders from the World Church and so when decisions are made in session with church leaders there, you have a representative group of leaders. That's the way God designed for leadership and church structure to be, and it's actually a very good structure. Well, Elder Butler couldn't be there, but Jones and Wagner were there, and certain things happened. The issue of the law in Galatians got agitated, and so Brother Kilgore, was his name, gets up before the delegates, and this is what was interesting. At these General Assembly meetings, non-Adventists were also in the meeting, so it wasn't just the delegates. You also had non-Adventists and newspaper reporters, and Elder Kilgore gets up in front of Adventists and non-Adventists and says, this is just so unfair. Our General Conference president is not here He's the one who understands how to study the Bible, and we shouldn't be studying this if he's not here because he's the one that really understands this issue. And Ellen White got up the next day and said, Brother Kilgore was not speaking by the leading of the Spirit when he said that. Now, why not? Because what happened was, the leadership of the church at that time was fostering the same spirit that we are the leaders. Listen to us. We make the decisions. We are the ones that tell you how to study the Bible. We are the ones that understand. And, and it, Elder Butler actually, had, before 1888 conference, actually said, you know, Jones and Wagner, those guys from California, those guys are just fledgling ministers. They don't really know what they're talking about. And so... When the Lord brings Jones and Wagner in to give a message to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, the, the people look to the leadership and they say, well, what do you think? Is this good? No, those guys are fledgling ministers. They don't know what they're talking about. Same spirit. The same idea that we look to man instead of to God to rightly divide the word of truth. And in fact, things were so bad that the leaders of the general conference were telling people that Ellen White was under the influence of Jones Wagner and her son Willie White. And that, yeah, she may have had, you know, the, she may have been speaking through the voice of God in the past, but you can't trust her now. She's under the influence. That's what kingly power and pride will do to you. So here God sends a message of righteousness by faith. But how can you understand righteousness by faith when you're proud and you think you're better than other people? You're not going to understand righteousness by faith because righteousness by faith cuts to the very bone and points out the issue of self in our lives and calls us to surrender our lives and ourselves to Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk in the last 10 to 12 minutes about a burden that I have for God's people today. <clears throat> you know, I think everybody, men and women alike, all of us struggle with pride in different ways. The issue, though, of kingly power 
and the pride that goes with kingly power, I believe that men in ministry especially struggle with this issue of the pride of life. So for example, you're a minister of the gospel and you look forward to preaching sermons so that you can get compliments afterwards. You look forward to teaching and preaching so that you can hear the praise of men and so that you can hear people say, wow, nobody can explain the Bible as well as you can. And you believe them. It's like, man, yeah, uh, I'm good. I can really break it down. That's not according to God's will. You also see people in ministry, people in leadership who have pride of power, pride of position, authority, and influence. People don't come out directly and say things like this, but you can kind of see it in the spirit of, of such as, do you know who I am? I know three conference presidents, and I can hook you up if you need something. That's not the humility of Christ. That's pride of power, pride of authority, pride of influence. Hey, I'm the director of Advent Hope, or I'm the, the director of Southwest Youth Conference, or you name it. You know, I, I'm the one who makes the decision, so don't, don't tell me what to do. That's not humility. That's pride of power, authority, and influence. Now, I want to read a quote, and this is something that Ellen White talks about. It's from the section called The Danger of Applause. It's Testimonies, Volume 3, page 185. She says, I have been shown that great caution should be used even when it is necessary to lift a burden of oppression for men and women, lest they lean to their own wisdom and fail to make God their only dependence. It is not safe to speak in praise of persons or to exalt the ability of, of a minister of Christ. In the day of God, very many will be weighed in the balance and found wanting because of exaltation. I would warn my brethren and sisters never to flatter persons because of their ability, for they cannot bear it. Did you know that? Self is easily exalted, and in consequence, persons lose their balance. I say again to my brethren and sisters, if you would have your souls clean from the blood of all men, never flatter, never praise the efforts of poor mortals, for it may prove their ruin. Go on. She goes on to say, and this is speaking about ministers. Some ministers of ability who are now preaching present truth love approbation. Applause stimulates them as the glass of wine does the inebriate. Place these ministers where they have a small congregation which promises no special excitement and which provokes no decided opposition, and they will lose their interest and zeal and appear as languid in the work as the inebriate is when he is deprived of his dram. These men will fail to make real practical laborers until they learn to labor without the excitement of applause. What is your motivation for being in the Lord's work? Is it so that you'll be recognized by your peers as doing this great and wonderful work? Is it so that you will be known as the mover and shaker of the movement who makes the important decisions and allows God to use you to change people's lives and and Quietly, you're like, man, wow, I'm so important in this movement. God is not looking for men and women who have that kind of spirit. And, you know, I'm, I want to give my personal testimony in the last few minutes. You know, I've been here for nine years. I know many of you just by the fact that I've been here for so long, and yet there's many of you that are new who don't know me. 
And I just want to hit a couple of points that relate to this issue of, of pride and, and so forth. When I was in high school, I went to Highland Academy in Portland, Tennessee, and I had some very godly teachers. I got a good education there. Every year at graduation, they had, um, for the graduating senior class, they gave an award to the male and female student of the year. And I started paying attention to that maybe my sophomore year, and I was like, you know, maybe when I graduate from academy, I will be the student of the year. And I didn't really talk to anybody about it, because I knew that would be, that would be bad. Uh, <laughs> um, and so... I just quietly thought to myself of all the reasons why I was more qualified than any of the other guys in my class for why I should be student of the year. And I think actually at one time I talked to my mom about it. It was a Sabbath afternoon walk. And for those of you who know my mom, bless her heart, she's about as humble as they come. And she was just like, Norman, you know, um, we shouldn't be thinking about things like that. The Lord will bless us as he does, but we shouldn't be striving for recognition. But, and I kind of heard her say it and knew it was right, but I continued to, to really want that award. And so sure enough, graduation morning comes, and they announced the award, and it went to Norman McNulty. And I proudly stood up, and I received the award, and was like, yep, I knew I deserved that one. <laughs> and... Looking back, you know, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing to admit that I felt that way. But then I went to college and was pre-med, and of course people, and those of you who are medical students here or maybe pre-med or in a professional field can relate to this. Oh, wow, you're pre-med. Wow, you, you must be smart. Wow, wow. And it's like, yeah, it must be. Wow. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, I came here to Loma Linda, and it was here in Loma Linda that I really had my conversion experience. And it's also where the Lord began the process of humbling me. Um, some people can go through medical school, and it's a piece of cake. Um, I was not that person. Now, I got through in four years and passed all the tests and all that, but it's only by the grace of God. And... I realized that apart from God, that I am very weak, and even though I think that I'm so great, apart from God, humanly speaking, that really pride, love of power, love of position is the worst possible thing that I could be tempted to have. And, you know, those temptations still continue. Um, I think many of you know that I was in leadership here in Avent Hope for many years. I'm moving away now, so I'm stepping away from that. And there's this temptation, this tendency for the devil to put these thoughts in your mind, like, well, Norman, you know, where would Avent Hope be if you hadn't been here? And I'm sharing that with you because I want you to know that all of us are tempted. All of us struggle with 
the temptation to exalt ourselves, to lift ourselves up instead of lifting God up. I mean, I've had people come and tell me, man, Norman, you really break down this book in such a clear way or this or that or whatever. And it's easy to start believing that if you don't stay in tune with God because God is the source of all wisdom. God is the source of all power. And I'm not saying that I have arrived. I'm not saying look at, at me as the example of humility. It's sort of like Barack Obama gave this, this speech at a dinner where they were making fun of themselves, and he said, you know, one of my greatest attributes is humility. So I'm not saying that, <laughs> I'm not saying that I am the shining example of humility. What I'm saying is through my life, I have been tempted to be proud. I have been tempted to have this spirit of self-exaltation to accept the accolades of human beings instead of pointing them to Christ as the source of strength and power. Because God is the source and strength and power of Advent hope or of any other thing that is happening in his work. It's not any one person. And if other people come along after my time after I've moved away and the Lord is able to work through them because they're more humble and they're more surrendered and, the God, and God does greater th things here in Loma Linda, I pray that happens. And, you know, I've heard people say, well, man, you know, Norman, you're leaving. Tim's already left. What's going to happen to Advent Hope? Well, I'll tell you what. If you have leaders here who are surrendered to the Lord and who trust in him completely, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen to Advent Hope because me or anyone else have never been the leader of Advent Hope. God has been. And so I point you to Jesus Christ, not to any one person here. Now, I'll close with Philippians chapter 2. You know, we, we want, we've identified the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of pride, humility, self-exaltation, those things. And yet Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, he is the one who is worthy of honor, worship, praise, and adoration. Notice what his experience was. Starting in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You know, I'll say this. Let each esteem other better than themselves. I don't care if you're the president of the General Conference or GYC or the leader of Advent Hope or you're a humble layperson out in the middle of Nebraska. The only thing... God cares about is whether you're faithful to God and serving him with all your heart. Because you could be in a high position of leadership and the only reason you're there is for you to get praise and adoration from men. And God is not pleased with that. God is looking for people who in the humblest walks of life will be humble and allow God to lead. And then we get to verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. My friends, as I close... That is the picture that I want to point you to, Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He humbled himself, came to this earth, became a human being. 
surely as we serve him, we can partake of that spirit and not exalt ourselves because we are nothing without God. You know, the 1888 message, the purpose of it was to lay the glory of man in the dust. But the leadership of the church didn't want their glory to be laid in the dust. And if there's any of you here today that appreciate your human glory, your accomplishments, your power, your pride, God is saying to you, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I pray that each one of us will have that experience. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that we will have the mind of Christ, one of absolute humility. Forgive us for looking to ourselves, exalting ourselves, patting ourselves on the back for all that we have done when really you're the one who's done everything. Forgive us for our sins. Help us to be humble and to be vessels that you can work through to finish your work here on this earth. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen.